0: Hello, and welcome to A Health Podyssey. I'm your host, Alan Weil. Racism manifests in different ways for different people in different environments. For many black women, experiences with sexual and reproductive health reveal cross cutting themes of racism, sexism, and classism, all expressed in the context of strong social norms and prejudices regarding black women and reproduction. Or, to just put it more simply, if you want to study racism, a good place to look is at Black women's experiences with reproductive health. And that's exactly what we're going to do in today's episode of A Health policy. Now, attention to poor health outcomes for Black women has grown recently, in part due to stories of negative maternity experiences of prominent Black women in, such as Serena Williams, And Congress has gotten into the act, taking steps to address the crisis of high rates of maternal mortality among Black women. But what are the individual experiences behind this crisis? I'm here today with Monica Simpson, Executive Director of SisterSong, an organization dedicated to reproductive justice. Ms. Simpson and co-authors published a paper in the February 2022 issue of Health Affairs examining the reproductive health experiences of Black women in the South. They found that Black women's experiences navigating sexual and reproductive care were informed by both structural and individual racism, often leading to poorer quality care and likely worse health outcomes. We'll discuss these findings and their implications in today's episode. Simpson. Welcome to the program.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: I'm really looking forward to this conversation to bring a a real world perspective to concepts that are often discussed, but not always particularly well understood. Your paper focuses on the sexual and reproductive health experiences of Black women in Georgia and North Carolina. So let's just start with the question of why you chose this topic and these states for the research.
1: For sure. Um, we chose the, these two states in particular for a couple of different reasons. One, our national office is based in Georgia. And so our understanding of the landscape of Georgia is something that we um, have been you know, deeply connected to and organizing for um, for quite some time, for well over 20 years now. And North Carolina is one of the newer states that we have started to do state-based work in. But also when looking at these two states in particular, we wanted people to understand that the experiences of Black women living in these states um, were important to bring to the forefront because these states in particular have restrictive reproductive health environments in them. Right? For instance, like public insurance coverage of abortion care is permissible only under limited circumstances. Um, 31% really lack reasonable access and their categories county to a health center, Um, 26% and 50% of counties in North Carolina and Georgia were both without obstetric um, with gynecological care in 2018, that's something that came to light for us. So, because Black and Brown communities tend to be overrepresented in Medicaid and public school systems and public programs offering access to reproductive health services, such as the Affordable Care Act and Title X, and all of these different experiences were really important for us to like bring to the forefront. So, these two states in particular gave us a lot to really work with um, and to hope and and and. Absolutely, it was what came out in in a lot of the conversations that we had with Black women in those states. We can see that in the paper.
0: And you're very clear that you're not suggesting that we can uh, extrapolate from these two states to the whole country, but these are two large states, and these are very important experiences that uh, we need to understand more deeply. Um, And I'd like to get into what you learned. Now, one element of this work is you took a community-based participatory research approach. the yes. uh, That's something that may be familiar to some, but not to many others, particularly people who are accustomed to working with sort of quantitative large data sets. So tell us a little bit about the community-based participatory research framework. Why is it important to use it given the topic that you've uh, selected here? Um, what, what What drove you to that and what were the implications of it?
1: Yeah, I really love this research model. Um, I don't think it gets enough credit. I don't think we talk about it enough. Um, But community-based participatory research projects are really a beautiful research tool that allows us to get to the stories and to bring people's lived experiences into the research in a way that, again, some of that quantitative or polling or other types of research methods don't necessarily do. And so for our particular project, um, we had a beautiful collaboration um, between um, Sister Song, which is of course a reproductive justice organization, and our research partner, which was IBIS Reproductive Health. And so from the very beginning, you know, our teams like really recognized that the bo- that the best and the most like authentic approach to collecting data and to understanding the data and to using the data to successfully bring our changes, you know, the change that we want to see in the work together was to use this particular research model. Um, And so this meant that our researchers and community members, which was not just our sister song staff, but also included an entire board of Black women leaders in both states and community organizations, we brought all of these folks together to develop the questions, to garner the funds for this, to develop the study so Black women had their hands and their minds and their beautiful experiences. It was through the entire process that really helped us really and analyze this work and disseminate this data. And so this approach to research has been shown a lot to really improve health outcomes at the end of the day and the sustainability of interventions and that it really helps us to really lead to like effective dissemination and translation of findings to really reduce, you know, the health disparities that we're all working so hard to reduce, right? It just gives us such a beautiful way to do that through the storytelling, through the direct connection of community members. Um, And so that's why we really wanted to lean on this model, right, to do it in this way, because it really was going to give us what we felt was going to be the true picture of what Black women were facing around their reproductive health care.
0: You know, there's a lot of talk these days about trust in healthcare, care. And there's also the element of trust in research. People are yeah. uh, not necessarily going to be forthcoming if they feel like they're the subject of someone else's observation. But if they're part of the process, that changes not just how they feel about it, but probably the accuracy of the information you collect. I agree. Well, I'm excited you took that approach and it does give us access to uh, insights that we probably wouldn't otherwise have. Now, as we talk about some of the findings, I do wanna emphasize something that you note in the paper that I think needs to be said. Uh, You took a qualitative approach, we'll get to that in in the focus groups and interviews. Um, You did not prompt the participants in the research for comments about racism. This was not a, oh, talk to us about racism, uh, project. This was talk about your experiences and then you saw what emerged and racism was a theme that emerged. I just want to clarify that, make sure I got that right. Is that is that a proper read of the approach?
1: Absolutely. You're absolutely right. We did not give any specific prompts around racism at all, but um, it absolutely became a very clear theme across all of the different discussions that were coming out in those stories. Um, And we knew that was going to happen, right? I don't think (laughs) going into this process, we can't, if we're bringing Black people together, if we bring people of color together, right, in this country in any type of way, and we're talking about the systems that impact our lives, unfortunately, what is going to always come up is that racism is at the root of so many of our experiences and um, really does have an impact on the way that we are able to get access to what we need. Um, And so we didn't, we didn't do the prompt because I think we already knew that that was going to come up, but it was interesting to see how it came up in those discussions.
0: Yeah. So that's actually where I wanted to go because I'm sure you knew it would come up, but then you have to figure out, well, what do we do with this? And, and you coded comments into three categories of racism structural cultural and personal now there are Mm -hmm. a lot of different ways people have divided up types of racism um, in uh, analysis, but I wonder if you could just say a little more about what those three categories mean to you and what they meant to the people who uh, you spoke with.
1: Yeah, for sure. So when we thought when we looked at the, the the three different categories for us, structural racism, we use it as a way to refer to the structures and policies that really reduce the access, you know, to the desired opportunities and resources that folks needed. Right. So we looked at that as like the overarching kind of structures and policies. The individual and more personal racism, we really Use that to refer to the experiences of the um, that people were that they were experiencing, right? Just their their lived experiences. Um, Thinking about the differential treatment directed at individuals by social institutions and the individuals that they were coming in contact with. So that's kind of how we looked at the individual racism part of it or personal. And then the cultural racism part really referred to the embedding of like inferiority of black folks and other non-whites into belief systems, images, and norms of like a larger culture that leads to like widespread like negative beliefs and, you know, stereotypes and attitudes and prejudice that really devalue and, and marginalize and just really subordinate you know um, non-white racial populations right so that's kind of how we broke it down for folks to really give us a clear picture as to how racism was really showing up in their in their experiences
0: so I want to pause here I, I just am so struck by this um, we published quite a few papers in this issue on racism and there's a lot of emphasis on structure and structural and institutional racism. And then in our society, there's a lot of talk about the personal. And of course, it's shunned and, and people deny its existence, but you know, it's culturally not acceptable to behave in a racist way. But the cultural element here, the embedding of negative stereotypes in the culture, which then are absorbed by people in ways that they may not even be aware of and expressed in ways they may not be aware of. And so they deny that they're racist because they don't feel like they're acting the way people describe racist actions, but they're just because they don't see it doesn't mean it's there. And I've said this, uh, in another context and I'll say it here, uh, I know that I grew up in a culture where I was bombarded with racist imagery in cartoons, in TV shows, in uh, everywhere I turned and sexist imagery. It was everywhere. And the notion that somehow that's just part of the past uh, or it doesn't affect people seems very bizarre to me. So I'm really glad um as i said uh, our other papers put more emphasis on structural for good reasons but this drawing out of the cultural i think is is so important and I, and i'm 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 glad that was a theme you were able to tease out
1: yeah i think that that was one of the most fascinating parts of this for us was that for some reason people think that you know this particular type of racism, is it something that we should be digging into? And it, we absolutely have to because it's everywhere, right? <laughs> it's like you said, it's like, it's from television to what we see in print and media. Like, I mean, it just shows up in really insidious ways. And we have to understand that that's going to have a direct impact, right, on um, how people are able to access what they need for, and the way that people are going to be treated. Like, it shows up. And so I think that for me, you know, being newer to this research world, you know, coming at this from an organizer and you know activist perspective, it was really important to, to really tease that thing out right? for us to really be able to see that re- very clearly in this, um, in this study.
0: So I want to get into the major themes that emerged, but before we do that, I realize we've talked about community participatory research, we've talked about the location and the topic, but just give us a few words about what the study actually did with the focus groups and the interviews.
1: Yeah, so we wanted to create an environment, really, for folks to be able to go through a series of questions and just... Um just kind of like prompts to help them help us understand what their lived experiences were, um, what their experiences were with the healthcare providers, um, what their first understandings were around their set ground sex and their bodies. Like we really wanted to take a very holistic approach, and and what I would say is a reproductive approach, reproductive justice approach to how we think about reproductive healthcare. Um, And what was lacking, where the gaps were, what was needed um, for Black women in particular, right? And so, you know, we call them focus groups. But for a lot of the folks who came together in these two states, they felt like, Um, sister circles, just like a way for folks to come together to have a safe space to actually share their stories, because what that's another thing that we realized in doing this work and and holding these different focus groups across the states and in doing the in-depth interviews, which was another part of the, um, the process as well, kind of digging in deeper with individuals about their stories, right? There were... A lot of times what we got from folks and what we heard from them was that they there were just not enough safe spaces for Black women to talk about their experiences. And they felt like they had to hold on to these stories. And um, we know what that does to our bodies. We know the weathering that that creates, right? Um, so. We were like, no, we have to do this differently. We have to create these safe spaces for folks to be able to talk and to share and to see themselves reflected in each other, right? So across um, age and, you know, socioeconomic backgrounds, um, sexuality, gender, like we were very intentional about bringing together a diverse group of Black women to talk about their experiences. And so this, this, this process gave us, again, this this beautiful opportunity to to get to these deeper stories that then helped us understand and pull out a lot of these themes that helped us get to this ultimate study, right? Um, But that's kind of like what the process was. You know, um, I'm not gonna, I'm again, I'm not a researcher. So the way that I talk about it is very much from like a community (laughs) perspective, but we brought folks together, right? For them to share their stories and created a safe space for them to do that. And then that then of course became, a part of this research project right that now gave us this amazing paper that we hope is going to be make, continue to make impacts in the way that um, health care providers show up for black women to ensure that we make it possible for us to have better outcomes
0: so of course i'm eager to get into the themes that emerged um, but i think at this point we should take a quick break and we'll come back and dive into those.
2: Health Affairs Pathways is a new podcast series exploring the various avenues and alleyways of the healthcare system through a variety of storytelling. Unique series are created by fellows at the Health Affairs Podcast Fellowship Program. Join the fellows on their journey to unearth a new healthcare story on such topics as healthcare consolidation, independent primary care, health equity, and more. Our first season is a six-part series from Lolita Abiyankar, her series, Titled Piecemeal, examines how consolidation in healthcare is affecting independent primary care. Subscribe wherever you listen.
0: And we're back. I'm speaking with Monica Simpson about a paper that examined the sexual and reproductive health experiences of Black women in Georgia and North Carolina. We've done a lot of setup here about the kinds of conversations you had and why they're unique and give us access to information that. You really couldn't find any other way. Uh, You have so many findings in this paper. If if the listener wants to get into them, they're going to have to read it. But I have a few that stood out for me that I just want to uh, bring up and get some additional thoughts from you, having been a part of the process. Uh, One theme that emerged is the role of segregation. And this really is a big part of the story of racism in the United States. But here it played out particularly with respect to access to health care. What I got from the paper is that there was a clear sense in the minds of the women who participated in your study that uh, care facilities located in majority black neighborhoods were generally viewed as inferior. There was reference to sort of the white hospital or the white Uh, uh, health center in the white part of town, that's a real dividing line. So I just wonder if you could say a little bit more about that theme and what you learned about it.
1: Yeah, I I thought this was a really good, you know, it, it just... There was so much in this that was just—I I, I dig into it all the time. <laughs> I go back to this thing so much. So y'all, please read the paper. But um, this theme in particular emerged in our discussion on how structural racism impacted the experiences of reproductive health care services, and um, more specifically, the quality of the reproductive health care experience. Right. So our participants in the study, like they really observed and. and, and Like a combined penalty of being black and receiving, you know, government assistance, so to speak, right? Or having no insurance coverage at all. And so many healthcare facilities in predominantly black communities were described as facilities that primarily served a high proportion of people on government assistance with no insurance. And so these were the same facilities that were described as, you know, really providing lower quality care in comparison with more expensive hospitals or facilities. And this is due to lower investment in these facilities like we saw that over and over again and we can see that you know across the country right like these these facilities are in the, that are in these neighborhoods that don't get the don't get the resources and the investments they're not going to be giving the best care. And that's just what we saw in, in a lot of the stories that came out. And so in particular, like one, one, one of the participants, she reflected that she was advised by a physician to avoid a specific hospital that served pr- um, primarily government assisted individuals, unless she had no insurance. Right. So, People know that this is a thing that's going on. And then another participant like reflected on how much better her pregnancy care was at a quote unquote white hospital. Right. So in our discussions with folks, we could like really see that there was a need and there was a call right out to to people to say that we want greater investments in the hospitals um, that are in our communities. And so that those hospitals can also receive supplemental payments for, for providing care for uninsured individuals, as well as expanding reimbursement to providers, just like a whole like way of like us thinking about what some of the solutions should be. It led us to think about those solutions and to really be able to, to track a record of improving maternal health outcomes um, among low-income women and women of color. Like this is just this theme just gave us so much to think about in terms of like solutions that we wanted um, to see and that we know that the participants were calling for, but that's really kind of what came out of that theme for us.
0: Let me just pull another one in, which was this uh, comment from people about avoiding care because they were not listened to or respected. Um, And of course, Uh, Everyone wants to be respected, but the notion that actually needed care was in in some instances being avoided because uh, the women in the study had had such negative experiences or their friends had had such negative experiences, they just didn't want to go through with it. And uh, I did note one comment about people being guided, for example, to home births, which we know on average are, are not as safe, particularly for higher risk pregnancies, um, but they just felt like they at least would be respected in that setting, unlike in in a, a hospital, perhaps. Um, so where does that take you both, again, deeper, because you were part of it, and also maybe from some of the policy uh, or, or solution ideas, just like you mentioned in the last uh, topic?
1: Yeah, for sure. I will say to the point um, about home births in particular, right? We we, we, we're doing a lot of work with, you know, um, community-based midwives and birth workers. And I think that there's just a, a lot more research and opportunity for us to think about, you know, the safety measure of home births, because that is something that is a is a part of a culture as Black people in particular, but as folks of color as well, like home birthing and, and having, you know, our midwives and birth workers that are reflective of who we are. Is a deep part of our culture and I mean there's just a lot of work that we want to pull out there and I think that that's something that again it showed up in this particular theme right and in this particular theme in our discussion on the impact of like individual racism and its impact on both like the utilization as well as like the experience of reproductive health care um it manifested through these interactions with healthcare providers negatively you know, uh, you know, not or black women not getting what they need, right, and having a negative experience um, as they were in healthcare services. You made a mention of like Serena Williams, right, in the in your beginning comments. Like this is just something that's getting out of control in this country where black women are not listened to, they're not heard, um, and so so many folks are like really having these negative experiences, and unfortunately, some folks have lost their lives because they were just not listened to. You know, whenever they were speaking about what they needed for themselves or what was coming up for them. And so also like medical professionals disbelief or like the dismissal of our reproductive concerns again really has resulted you know in this 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 dilemma that we're in right now. And so this thread was really most evident you know in recounts of birthing in particular and the use of medical services for birthing was frequently described described unfortunately as traumatic or horrible. Like that is that was so hard to hold that This this experience for so many that's supposed to be this beautiful time of life coming into the world was described as traumatic or horrible, (laughs) and so they were recounting their birthing. that their their support systems weren't listened to, that they were ignored, that the I mean, it just it blew our minds, right? What was really come coming out of this particular theme? And so, you know, to really guard against this individual racism that you know so many people experienced during birthing, participants reported that they you know, really sought out to recommend others to have those home births and for us to return back to some of the ways that we um, were taking care of ourselves and our families and our communities because of just what they were dealing with other than going into a hospital. So, um, I think there's just so much again for us to like really continue to do some deeper research on through this particular theme. There's a lot for us to really consider when thinking about how we want to also create more solutions around this particular piece of the work, too. But um, it definitely gave us a lot to chew on, <laughs> right? This particular theme, um, for sure.
0: And I do want to be clear there's actually great evidence to support the use of midwives and birthing right. out, outside of hospitals. I wasn't trying to be uh, suggest yes. anything negative about that. The notion that someone potentially with a high risk would choose to birth at home because they didn't want to be treated with disrespect that's where i think the 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 medical risk uh, starts to grow but absolutely the move to to uh get out of hospitals and and uh, use midwives is is it not, not just culturally appropriate. It's actually quite a, it's quite strongly evidence-based. So I, right. <laughs> I I didn't want to come across as negative about that. Oh but.
1: yeah. I absolutely didn't feel you to say that at all. Um, I just thought that would give us an opportunity to think about how much more research we want to do on that. And like, just, I think there's just so many more stories that we can uplift around that. Um, that's, I, that's where I was going from too, but you're absolutely right. Absolutely right.
0: So one more theme, which is uh, the Importance of racial concordance between black women and their medical providers, and this goes, I think back to the discussion about cultural uh, racism that we were talking about before, of sort of what assumptions come in the room when you when, when you walk in that room. Um, w- there is an evidence base again, to suggest that uh, racial concordance is is a positive factor in uh, quality of care. Um, I just wonder if you could, again, go a little deeper into uh, what you heard.
1: Yeah. And these listening sessions, this was one of the the topics I feel like a lot of people really, really leaned into, right? And really gave us a lot to think about Um, because what came out of these listening sessions, both of them in particular, um, was that individual racism in many cases, like really undermined the patient-doctor relationship at the end of the day and participants no longer really they, they, they reported like they didn't want to ask questions during their visit or they avoided care altogether because medical professionals did not believe um, them or they were, they felt like their concerns were being dismissed. Right. Um, and then many believe that really increasing the presence and the prevalence of black medical professionals and, or having more diverse medical staff could really help guard them against the individual racism they were experiencing within the medical system. <laughs> right. Like how, doesn't that make sense, right? If you see someone who looks like you, um, if you see yourself reflected, then you feel like you're going to get better care. And in most instances, like that is what people are really calling for. Um, and for a lot of the a lot of the participants, they felt like Black medical professionals were seen as more trustworthy and more knowledgeable of their needs, and um, and could really understand their concerns more. And so, you know, this. They 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 were seem to be more empathetic at the end of the day and just be able to just provide more comprehensive care. And that's really what we want at the end of the day. And so it was really good to hear that people were saying that this is something that they wanted, right? And we could just hear it over and over again in our focus groups that they just they were actively seeking out care from black medical providers. They wanted to be taken care of by someone who looks like them. Um, And so I think that it's really important for folks to hear that and to see that documented, right? That there is a gap (laughs) that we have to think about how we feel, right? Um, In the medical system where people just don't see like, they they don't feel as if they have themselves reflected, you know, in those folks who are providing care to them. So again, this was another one of those things, another one of those things where, again, people just really they gave us a lot. I gave us a lot to really think about and um, to think about in terms of like creating solutions around to.
0: Well, that's probably a good place for us to uh, wind down our conversation. You lead a reproductive justice organization. And at the end of the paper, there's this statement that policies that reduce structural barriers to reproductive health care and service availability and that provide resources for more culturally competent care will help improve the experience of Black women mm-hmm. seeking reproductive health services may ultimately improve health outcomes. Um, So you feel and you've expressed already the sense that the richness of the information you gained through the study helps you do your job. Uh, When you think about policies that could reduce these structural barriers, uh, what comes to mind?
1: So much. (laughs) So much comes to mind for sure. I mean, you know, again, the study just really helped us understand that restrictions on public insurance coverage of reproductive health services like really impacted access and utilization of services and really disrupted the continuity of care that folks need. So policies that improve access to reproductive health could really enhance reproductive health outcomes for black women. And these include things like expanding federally funded Medicaid coverage. We still have what there's the fact that we still have so many States that don't have Medicaid coverage and that there's like no increase in that is just It baffles me to this day. You know, removing restrictive regulations, you know, like the domestic gag rule, which we know this administration has made big moves towards, and like really continuing to beef up our federally funded programs like Title X, enacting policies such as the equal access to abortion coverage and health insurance, like the EACH Act, um, could really do a lot. I mean, we're in the fight of our lives right now for Roe, with with, with another Supreme Court case that we're looking to that could really take Roe out of the picture, even though we know it is, it's very, very limited for so many people. But I mean, that's just something we have to continue to fight for and ensure that we have a Supreme Court, we have, you know, those elected officials in place to help people understand the totality of what folks need for their reproductive health care, which is access, you know, to maternal health, to abortion care, to contraception, to all of the things that we need to ensure that we can make our own decisions about our reproductive lives um, in a way that feels empowering right, and and not restrictive. So those are just some of the ways. And these are some of the things that we're currently working on at the state and federal level um, to continue to push for. But um, I think we also are very excited about continuing to do more research to pull out more of these stories and more of the needs of our communities that will help us to continue to create better solutions for the folks that we want to serve and be in community with.
0: Well, Ms. Simpson, thank you so much for your uh, leadership role in this research that brings voices to the conversation that often just wouldn't otherwise uh, be heard, and for uh, putting that in the form of a paper that we had the privilege of publishing, and today for being my guest on A Health policy. I really appreciate you being here with me.
1: Thank you so much, Alan, and we really appreciate being able to um, work with the publication and allowed us to really bring all of our all of our full selves right into the research, and um, it was really an honor to be able to do this work with you
0: all. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll tell a friend about a health
2: policy. Health policy is produced by Health Affairs, the leading journal for health policy research. The team behind the show includes Patty Sweet. Jeff Byers, Julia Vivolo, Sarah Kolk, and Sue Ducat. Like the show? Subscribe to A Health Podacy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thanks for listening, and have a great morning, day, or evening.